The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 88 of the Squawk Ident podcast, recorded on the 31st of August, 2021, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's flight, we are proud to be joined by a fantastic Squawk Ident crew member. Rob D is here. Our journey today will have us speaking with an amazing aviator. He is a Texas sheep rancher, a glider instructor, CFI, I, MEI flight instructor, and he has type ratings in the Citation Jet, the MD-80, the 737, 777, 787, and the DC-3. He is a legacy airline captain and a flagship Detroit DC-3 captain. We are honored to have Captain Vic Barber join us today. All this and more aboard Flight 88 of the Squawk Ident Podcast. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines. Flight 88 is officially underway. Assisting at the controls today is a superb aviator and Squawk Ident co-host. He is a former international and professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AP and avionics tech, an RC aircraft commander, a boat skipper, a commercial drone operator, and currently an Airbus pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show is an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. He joins us today from his layover in Seattle, Washington, where the smoked salmon and the lobster rolls are in his near future. Help us in welcoming our very own... Mr. Rob D. Rob, how the hell are you? Hey, Tony. Good to be back, man. I uh, can't wait to go get some smoked salmon chowder and a lobster roll. That It's like the best out here. Uh, you know, I really enjoy the, the Seattle layovers, especially the long ones downtown. Yeah. I mean, totally worth it. Absolutely. It is. It so is. what have I you been up to? I saw this. Um, well, I've been getting to know the Airbus recently, uh, stretching the legs on uh, some of its... Uh, some of the flights out of Dallas, but I went to Vancouver last last week, and uh, that was a great layover. The weather was perfect. We're right on, right downtown. Um, again, there's plenty of seafood to be had, and um, uh, the I guess the border just opened up, and uh, it was really really cool to see. You know, the, uh, the downtown starting to come back to life, and uh, when we had lunch or uh, brunch at this beautiful restaurant down by the river. Uh, the server was actually telling us that it it was the first time that she's seen a U.S. dollar um, in a in a while because the border's been closed. So <laughs> it was pretty cool. Um, so they're accepting uh, yeah. cash. They're accepting cash, U.S. cash. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I'm I'm glad you're you're stretching your legs out there on the bus. Anything uh, yeah. like? kind of bite you yet because that's normally what they say is within the first 300 <laughs> hours you know that you think you're yeah. comfortable and you're all calm cool and collective sure. and all of a sudden fifi says uh no you didn't and she just comes up and bites you <laughs> no i not nothing yet i think um i think that's coming I, i'm sure it's going to happen to me sometime but 
you know, as you probably know, you, you fly a few of these airliners around for a while and, you know, you know, you learn you have to be totally ahead of the airplane as much as you can. So I've been trying to do a good job of trying to do a very good job of that, getting down early and slowing down and just not getting behind the, uh, the airplane at any point. And as you know, the, Air, the Airbus is an easy airplane to fly. So it's, uh, it's really laid back and, you know, not, not too big of a, you know, there's not very much, at least from what I've seen, that can get you in trouble unless you're really far behind the airplane. So yeah, uh, yeah everything's good. Yeah. And if you know, I'm sure that day's coming though. <laughs> yeah. I I've, I think I've pretty much made most of the mistakes possible to <laughs> in the airplane well, and not like damage it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I've been learning from guys like you and everybody else out there. Yeah. Know, I try to learn from other people's mistakes and, and uh, try not to, uh, make them when I, when I operate the airplane. Yeah. But just remember, happen, I'm sure. Remember if you're going into Phoenix and they say, Hey, do you want the uh, runway two six the last second? And you find yourself on base leg autopilot off flight directors, flight off. directors <laughs> off, give me the bird. <laughs> don't, don't slow the aircraft down that much. <laughs> uh, sorry. For right me. on. Yeah. <laughs> no, but we're really excited today because, you know, Rob uh, sent me a text yeah. message a few days ago and says, Hey, I got this fantastic captain that would be just wonderful for the show. Let's let's yeah. get him on. And you know, as I start digging into our next guest, I was really impressed with everything that he's accomplished. And talk about when you have someone that you can fly with and you find out about their background and they've become really a symbol of leadership and, and mentorship yeah. in, the, in the program, in the airline industry. And our next guest definitely falls suit to that. He, as we mentioned in the opener, uh, he is a Texas sheep rancher. Now, we're going to have to find out about this. A glider instructor, which is amazing. <laughs> Anything without an engine kind of scares me a little bit. Yes, hot air <laughs> balloons are included in that. I don't... <laughs> but yeah, CFI, double I and MEI flight instructor, still currently flight instructing. He has type ratings in a plethora of aircraft, um, almost every Boeing airplane that Legacy Airline flies. And what's most intriguing, he has a type rating in the DC-3. Fly Currently right. flies the DC-3 around. And that is some amazing... I mean... You know, anybody that's watched Casablanca will sit there and, and see the, the final scene and the airplane and the fog and the DC-3. I think it's a DC-3 with the engines yeah. spooling up and yeah. getting ready to go and, and the fog and just the sound yeah, big radial of engine. that big yeah. radial engine. And then the, oh, it, it's that that sound to me is like butter. I mean, come on. And, and our next <laughs> guest gets to fly a DC-3 on a regular basis. He's a legacy airline yeah. captain, a flagship Detroit DC captain. We're honored to have you. Let's just say a big squawk I didn't welcome to Captain Vic Barber. Captain, how the heck are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on board today. Oh, thank you. Hey, hey Vic. Welcome aboard. We're going to talk about your journey here in just a moment. But let's talk about, just for a split moment, what you've been experiencing just recently out on the line with with all that's going on in the world and in the industry you have the the mask mandate you have this vaccine vaccine debate that's going on you got delta now mandating that their pilots get it have you ever seen this in your long career in aviation well nothing like this of course but but we do have an interesting last 20 years in the airline industry so 
what I've learned in this industry is that it's important to manage your expectations. When uh, 9-11 happened, uh, security went crazy. We were all, uh, we, were no, we were used to going around security or at least being very, you know, hassled at a minimum. Uh, and that all changed. And uh, it was very frustrating. It was easy to walk around and be angry all the time. And one day I just decided, I'm tired of being angry all the time. And why am I angry all the time? Well, it's because my expectations aren't properly managed. Um, if I, so when I come to KCM today, KCM is a wonderful thing. Now we can, you know, we can go around, go around the regular security lines. Um, but occasionally we get, a, uh, we get a random check. So when I come to the KCM, uh, this is the time that I'm going to get, I'm going to get, I just set, prepare myself to get a random. If it happens, I go around, it's no big deal. It's when things catch you by surprise that you're going to get upset about it. And, yeah. And uh, so, so you have to have a realistic expectation about what, what's going to happen with your day. And so learned a lot of that through the last big event we had. And we get here and I caught myself doing it again, the masks and this and that. And I got to tell you, I am so tired of hearing no you can't do that or no this or, or we can't do that covid and this country just wasn't built on that it was built on not no or what we can't do it was built on how do we do what we want to do how do we do it how do we make it happen and yeah. no 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 is, is frustrating so catch myself being frustrated and so i just kind of realized that that uh i'm not in control of any of that and just need to uh, manage my expectations, and and you know if if I get a random check in case in uh, KCM, um, then whatever. And if I don't, it's a bonus. Now I'm happy. Yeah, you know that's very well said. I think uh, I think we've been talking about that now for some time. Is being prepared, having your expectations. I mean, isn't that what we do as pilots? We're always prepared for that engine failure at V1, the most critical point at at, at rotation. Um, exactly. you know, you gotta be prepared for that. Now, if it happens, you don't get bent around the axle. You just go, well, I've been trained for this time to get that muscle memory and those memorized flows and call outs out there. My aircraft. My <laughs> aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> those are right. the two hardest words to get out of your mouth anytime yeah. something happens. Yep. <laughs> You know, and Denzel did it so eloquently in the movie Flight, the fictitious film that no, that does not happen in That's real life, ladies like and gentlemen. You cannot roll and go inverted in an airliner for an extended period of time. <laughs> but uh, I have control of my aircraft. Yeah. Okay, sure, Denzel. You go for it. No, but to get back onto your journey, um, you know, we were talking a little bit in the pre-show and you said that your start didn't happen at a very young age with an expectation, partly because of your environment and what you're being told by the people around you, the, the older people around you. What can you tell me about how you got your start in aviation? Okay, well, you know, every kid likes airplanes. And I remember going to the airport a couple times with mom and you know waving at the airplanes and thinking that's pretty neat. Um, when I was about 15, I started working on a wheat farm. I grew up in Idaho 
And uh, I was working on a wheat farm. It was a it was a big deal, driving driving huge tractors, combines, trucks, you know, all aspects of the you know the wheat production process. And uh, the spray planes would come out and uh, and spray the fields. And those guys were just the they were just hot. Sierra Hotel. That was just and and the bosses the boss's son and I would go. We climb up on the. Uh, you know, the grain bins have a distributor auger that the augers go up above the, uh, um, above the, the grain elevators and, and you select which bin you want the grain to go into. Well, there's, there's distributor up there and there's ladders to go up there. So we get up on top and watch the spray planes do the field. Now that was, that was always a big turn on, but you know, no real good influence. Nobody telling me you can go do that. You know, it's just the opposite. Well, you have to do, you know, you have to have perfect eyes or you have to have this or that, which I did, by the way, perfect eyes. But, <laughs> you know, and, you know, be a, uh, be a genius and straight A's and all that sort of stuff. So was there wasn't a lot of encouragement there until later in my, uh, uh, t- toward the end of my senior year in high school, I had moved a couple times. And uh, the next door neighbor, a uh, good friend of mine to this day, uh, her dad was a, uh, the manager of the Kansas City downtown airport. He was a retired Air Force B-52 captain. And uh, he was just the opposite. He, he encouraged me. He told me, you can do whatever you want to do. And he showed me a whole path. Well, there's that saying, the straight and narrow path he showed me turned into a thousand winding roads. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, it started out in the right direction and ended up at a great destination, but it was a big winding, uh, winding journey. Did I answer your question, or did I just go off on something? No, that's exactly <laughs> you know what, what impressed yeah. me so much about when we were chatting a little bit before the beginning of the show is that you know you, you always ask you know how'd you get in your start in aviation, and everyone has a unique journey. That was part of the reason I wanted to start this podcast so many uh, years ago, a couple years ago now that we've been on the air, is because I'm always so intrigued by everyone's unique journey. And it's very similar what you were being told as a, at a young age that from what I was even being told at a young age, it's like, Oh, you know, we're not rich. Only rich people become pilots and, and, Oh, uh, you know, you have to be really good in math and you, you're not good in math. So you can't be a pilot. And basically you have to be in the military, you have to be in the military. You have to know, military, you have to know yep. a congressman in order or to go get to college, the endorsement, all this stuff. And I, <laughs> I, I later in life realized that my family thought it was dangerous. So they were discouraging oh. me. And so, you know, typical Italian, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a danger. It's a danger. And so <laughs> that's what I heard from my parents. And, and I, it wasn't until later on in life that uh, I met my, my wife and she says, that's bull crap. <laughs> Don't listen to other people tell you no. You want to listen to the people that tell you, yes, you can. And that's exactly what you did. And, and thank you for sharing that with us, because I'm absolutely positive that there are those out there in the community, and maybe even some listeners listening to this show, that are hearing the same from their surrounding. And you can't listen to that noise. Surround yourself with the people that say, 
Yes, you can. And if they don't know, you don't have a mentor, you don't have a leader in your life that can say, this is how you're going to do it. Here's the pathway, you know, then find it, find it, go hang out at that local GA airport and find that old timer that's sitting there telling old stories and the connections will begin. The journey will begin. And so thank you for sharing yeah. that with us. Now, Vic, you, you finally found someone, your neighbor's father, who was managing the Kansas City Airport, finally showed you the pathway. Where did that path begin for you? Well, um, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself. You know, school, where was I going to go? What was I going to do? And he suggested the uh, Warrant Officer Flight Training Program in the Army. So, hey, I can go straight in. And uh, so we did some, so we went down and talked to a recruiter. I did the, uh, I don't know how they test now, but it was the uh, ASVAB, the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, then. And I scored very well on that. Um, And then we did the Flight Aptitude Service Test, scored very well on that. And that started things going. Um, After I graduated from high school, I went on a wheat harvest crew. Uh, and that was starts down those, they used to do it this way. And I don't think they still do, uh, farmers tend to have their own, own, uh, harvesting equipment now, but there would be these operators that had several combines and trucks and they would start down in Texas when the wheat started to, to, uh, ripen and, and they would follow the harvest up through the Midwest because, you know, it would be earlier in Texas and then, you know, everything would start to ripen through Kansas, uh, or through Kansas and, and Colorado and Montana would end the season in the Montana, into Montana. And so I went on one of those crews and stayed on that crew up to, into Kansas. And then I went back home to Idaho um, when it came time to harvest up there, uh, uh, back to the ranch where I worked. And this whole time we were processing, we were running the processing for, uh, for warrant officer flight in the army. Well, so. So after the harvest, uh, my processing was still completing, and I got a request from the flight surgeon at Fort Rucker. Um, My application had got to him, and he was looking, he was reviewing, and I had gotten clobbered in the eye when I was a sophomore in high school, and I had what's called a blowout fracture. There's a paper-thin bone that holds up the orbit of your eye, Uh, and um, so... To heal that, they put a silicon implant disc underneath there, and your bone heals and press on. Well, that had happened. And so the flight surgeon wanted me to go up to Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane and have a, uh, an Air Force doctor look at it. He looked at it. He said, you're fine. At the time, I had 2010 vision, so everything worked great. No problem. So they sent the application back, and, and harvest was over. We did fall cultivation. I did a few odd jobs. and. Uh, my application came back again. They wanted me to go to a civilian doctor up in Spokane and get my eye looked at again. So I went to the civilian doctor. Um, the uh, civilian doctor, well, he was a little perturbed. He thought they were wasting his time. Uh, but he looked at it and said, you're fine. Sent the application back. So by this time, that was out of work. It was wintertime. Nothing was happening up there. So I had, job, I had a job waiting for me in Atlanta, Georgia. So. I went to Atlanta. I had a, uh, I drove my Mustang. I had a 65 Mustang. I drove, I drove to Atlanta and I was working two jobs down there waiting for this process to happen. 
And uh, eventually, uh, well, what I was planning on doing, yeah, well, I was just waiting. I, I, I was waiting. And, and the flight surgeon finally rejected my application. Now, this was the early 80s, and they were, there were military cutbacks. You know, 10 years later, I probably could have not even had that eye and, and got in. But they were looking for ways to cut people out of the process. So the flight surgeon, uh, he, uh, he washed my application for uh, previous damage, since I'd had previous damage on the eye. And I was crushed. I had, I had this future looking, I was going to go fly helicopters or fixed wing in the, in the army and take it from there, have a career. So I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. Oh, I need to figure out something. So I went back to the recruiter and said, what else you got? And he says, well, how about air traffic control? I said, okay, that keeps me in the industry. And, uh, and I can get college benefits, GI bill, whatnot. And, uh, so let's do it. So we signed up for delayed entry. I was going to go back to Idaho and work the harvest. And, uh, cause it had gone the whole year had gone through. It was getting close to harvest time again. Um, and so I was, uh, on my way, I'd sold my car and bought a motorcycle and I was on my way to the motorcycle shop to get a fairing for my trip. I was going to drive back, ride it back up to Idaho. And a guy pulled out in front of me and uh, I crashed into him oh and dest destroyed my right foot. Um, almost lost it. Nine pins and two screws to put it back together. Uh, bazillion stitches, uh, eight hours of surgery, just debreeding the foot from all the stuff in it. So that took me out for a year and it made me ineligible for, for the military. So now what am I going to do? I spent the year recovering and um the lawsuit i got some money out of that and so i headed embry riddle and got my private there and um i was there for two years and uh i ended up ended up with getting tight on funds so i dropped out of school which i regret to this day so if anybody's listening don't use me an example as an example it's mm -hmm. uh, it would have been a whole different picture if I had to come out of there with a degree. But I wanted to put all the money towards flying. So I got my instrument license and my commercial license. I went down to Phoenix at Estrella Sailport and got my glider rating. And uh, then I ended up getting a job, uh, my first flying job in Idaho, uh, towing gliders and giving glider rides up in uh, Driggs, Idaho, just on the uh, west side of the, the Tetons from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, Wonderful summer. Uh, at the end of the year, I was, uh, you know, the work ended. I did a little bit of work uh, for uh, one of my boss's friends. So we were oiling and chinking log houses. You know, that to get by. And I actually did, I actually worked for a crop duster for a little while, loading chemical for him. Um, he told me that if I, if I loaded for him in the fall, he'd let me fly the mosquito contracts down the Salt Lake Basin in his uh in his pawnee or his his brave in the uh in the fall or in the in the spring rather so i kind of thought okay here's a here's here's some place i can go be be one of those guys that was my hero and back when i was a kid well i i did yeah. that for i did that for a few weeks and hated being smelling like chemical constantly stained skin and we had an incident where oh. i was i was uh i was loading the 
his his ag wagon or ag cat uh, out on a dirt road. He was landing on the roads between the fields. Uh, we were spraying for potato bugs, and the hose broke and it drenched me. So I had to strip all my clothes off, and we oh. ran to a golf course that were and you know to hose me down. And at that point, I thought, you know, I don't think this is for me. I love the airplanes, and I respect those guys, but but. You know, I don't want that chemical in, in me. That's pretty harsh stuff. Yeah. And I don't, don't like not being able to wash it off the smell off. And, and, uh, again, uh, you know, a lot of respect for those guys. So I ended up, uh, back, back in Northern Idaho, uh, for a short while. And then I headed to Southern California. I have an aunt and uncle down there. And, uh, I was going to go down there and look for work. So I found a job in Hemet, California. Um, towing gliders on the weekends they didn't need they only needed somebody on the weekends they were they were a full-time operation but they they were staffed um so they actually got so i got to tow gliders on the weekend and uh i worked another job oh i was uh working in a radiator shop you know spraying radiators and delivering radiators and and uh then i ended, I ended up doing working at a uh, paris uh paris california at a jump operation doing a little bit of uh um hauling jumpers and eventually went full-time at the at the glider field so i was doing 20 to 30 toes a day towing gliders six days a week making forty dollars at forty dollars a day wow wow still still looking for the step up um and still going back and forth down to san diego and I i found a job Actually, no, I actually instructed in Palm Springs for a little bit. Little little gig as a flight instructor. I had my CFI. I picked that up and uh, and did that for a little bit. And then ended up getting a job with a uh, with a charter operation down in San Diego, Brownfield. They were doing charters for the military, the Navy squadrons, uh, hauling parts for the squadrons on detachment. And so that was really interesting. I got to do a lot of neat things, fly, flying in and out of military bases. Got to land once on the lake bed at Edwards, which oh, was uh, wow. That's oh, yeah, cool. I couldn't, couldn't wipe that grin off my face for a month. <laughs> I was we were flying four hundred twos, four hundred ones, two hundred sixes. You know, we were flying for the for the Navy and the Marines mostly out of there, out of out of out of North Island, Miramar. Anyways, we were flying for the Blue Angels over at uh, El Centro when they were training. Uh, big adventure. Yeah. You know, I was making a little bit more money, but not very well. Actually, I wasn't making as much money, but uh, I was definitely having a great time. Well, so I had I had been putting applications out everywhere and I got a call back from a little commuter in Nebraska called GP Express Airlines. And they were flying 402s and I had time in the 402. Well, they had a scheduled side and they had an unscheduled side. On the scheduled side, you had to use two pilots on the unscheduled side. You could just one pilot. Um, on the scheduled side, you had to have an ATP to be captain. And on the unscheduled side, you didn't. You just had to meet the 135 quals. And I had time in the airplane and the quals, so they hired me for their unscheduled side. Uh, when I was flying a freight run out of Omaha, Nebraska, to, uh, to Grand Island, Nebraska, every morning. Um, they had, it was a FedEx contract that they had in the 402. Um, eventually, uh, FedEx brought a caravan in for that. and so. I was I was out of work on that side, so they put me on the uh, airline side, and I didn't have enough seniority to be a captain. I didn't have my ATP yet, so I flew as a co-pilot, which was 
you know, one of those things, there's a lot of things that, uh, uh, that helped me be here today and, and getting to go from a single pilot environment completely and getting on the airline side and starting to learn from some more experienced captains was a real blessing. Um, and, uh, then so I how, ended up how going, old are you at this point? Oh, I'm 20, 23, maybe 20. Okay. Yeah, so, so that's so, a lot of experience and a lot of changing yeah. in your in your life, really, at a relatively Short young career, age yeah. to go from graduating high school and just kind of getting your private pilot right after to now having all this experience and all this change where you like every three or four months kind of looking for that next opportunity. Oh, yeah, yeah. I joke around and say I couldn't hold a steady job. But the fact of the matter is that I was, you know, I was kind of moving up in most cases, moving up or getting some better experience because, you know, I, I've, I've, I got nearly a thousand hours of towing uh, and it was 20 to 30 tows a day, four to six, four to six hours of, um, of wow. flying every day towing gliders. And I can land the crap out of a Pawnee, but it was daytime single engine <laughs> land. And, uh, and it wasn't, it didn't look that great for any, for a resume. Yeah. You know, I, right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the FedEx operator or the feet, feeder freight operator is a better, is a better word because FedEx wasn't their only, uh, wasn't their right. only contract. They did the UPS stuff and they, uh, and they hired me to do an airborne express run. It was a, and the company was called corporate air based out of Billings, Montana. Um, they they hired me for a a run that they had in a, a Navajo chieftain going from Denver to Rifle and spending all day in Rifle and coming back, um, and I would end up come back on Saturday morning. I would come back. I wouldn't stay there all day. So and then Monday evening I'd fly back out, and uh, so I I cut my teeth flying flying over the mountains there, and uh, and that was a good experience. And eventually that run ended, and so they brought me over to Denver and uh, checked me out in the uh, the, the 500 to 680 commander and the caravan and they ended up flying that whole system we flew through uh, colorado uh montana wyoming uh uh utah and uh yeah and that was that was the first time i really had a good positive cash flow i wasn't rich by any means but all the bills were getting paid every month and it was life was good (laughs) As a pilot, that's a huge accomplishment, especially yeah, starting out. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. So uh, I, I, I flew there, and, and, and I got on at that company. I can make, make a note about this. Most, most of my jobs have been, have been not based on my resume because it hasn't always looked that good. Um, most of my uh, chances to get a foot in the door came because I had a good uh, work record. You know, uh, guys knew me, had a uh, reputation, good work ethic, and, and, you know, I didn't tear up equipment and break rules. So, so my first flying job was actually one of my, uh, my tailwheel instructor recommended me for that job up in Idaho. Um, and the, uh, the job at Corporate Air over in, in Denver, my first boss uh, recommended me for the job there. Cause he was actually flying caravans for them in Hawaii. They had, they had the Hawaii caravans. The next job, I got a call from a fellow named Jim Cromie. He was the training officer at GP express and he had left there to go work at a startup flying Cessna citations on in scheduled service. And that was in Cincinnati. So he hired me to go over there and I spent, I spent a year 
Um, I got a thousand hours in the citation, a type rating. I was one of the last captains to upgrade there. And uh, uh, what happened was uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait. So when the fuel prices mm. spiked up, then the company went bankrupt. So not having burned any bridges, I went back to my last job at Corporate and flew there for a while, but I was back at the bottom of the seniority again. So I ended up, I was there for less than a year and got furloughed. Mm. So they all say it, you got to have furlough under your belt to be an airline pilot. So that was, that was my furlough. And uh, they actually were using me every now and again, because uh, FedEx was trading in old caravans for new ones. And so I was taking the old caravans over to, uh, uh, over to Wichita and taking delivery of the new caravans for the company. So that got me a little bit extra money. And, and, I, and I was talking to the salesman or the guy that was handling the contract over at uh, Wichita, Cessna. And he hooked me up with uh, Jim Coey. Uh, Jim Coy was the chief pilot at West Air Industries, which is another caravan operator in California. So, um, hmm. so I called him and he said, yeah, we got peak season Christmas coming up. We'll, will you come on out and fly with us for peak season? And then, you know, after the, after the season, the holiday season, we'll see what we have. And if you're interested. So I went out there and uh, uh, again, the beginning of a life, uh, lifelong friendship with Jim. Uh, I actually stayed with him in Fresno. What? Uh, during the peak season. And at the end of this season, he had the uh, Reno run open, Reno to Oakland every night. So, uh, so I, so I took that run and I was flying Reno to Oakland every night. And, uh, and I was going to school. I, I really do like school. Uh, I, I dropped out, I dropped out of Embry-Riddle and, and I realized after being out in the world, you know, every check ride is do or die. You know, every ground school is do or die. You're, when your job, when your job counts, you know, depends on it, you become really good at studying. And, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And at that point I had, so I was taking classes in Reno. That's where I met my wife. She was a study partner and, uh, another blessing, the, the added stability <laughs> to my life. Someone that's going to support your hobby for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <Of flying. laughs> yeah. She was, yeah, she's the, she was the, uh, the, the, uh, I want to say anchor. I want to say to stabilize, stabilize my life. So anyways, uh, uh, turns out that, uh, Western industries or FedEx was bringing an F 27 into Reno. Cause we had four, four caravans running out of Reno at night. So they decided that an F-27 would be a better airplane for it. Uh, and Western Industries didn't fly the F-27 for, uh, for FedEx. It was uh, operated by uh, uh, an outfit up in uh, Idaho, Empire Airways. They were operating F-27s for uh, FedEx. And so they came down. I didn't want to go back to um, the, uh, the valley and, and fly caravans as a floater. I, there wasn't, it wasn't going to be a run. It was just going to be floating around down there. And I, um, I wanted something a little more stable. So, so there was a job opening at Mountain Air Cargo, which was another uh, FedEx F-27 operator. And so I went to work there, and I was based in, uh, I was based in Memphis flying the F-27 for almost uh, well, about a year and year and eight months or something like that. Yeah, in the meantime, in the meantime, the uh, the first the first uh, DC nine 
MD-80 at, uh, we're going to call it Mustang Air, was, uh, was delivered while I was at, still at Reno. And uh, I just wanted to go work for that company so bad. And uh, so, so I worked on that for the next uh, time I was uh, in Memphis. And eventually I uh, got an interview and got hired there, came back to Reno and then uh, and was, was there. Uh, it, it flew in the, I was in the training department there. Um, really the upgrades were happening so fast that I became a part of the training process mm. just so I could be ready for my upgrade. And uh, so upgraded to captain and ended up becoming a sim instructor a little bit later. And then we were acquired by Legacy Airlines. Yeah. Now Mustang wow. Airlines is as what we're going to call it. Was that your first 121 job? It, it, well, actually, um, we were 121 in the F-27. Because you were doing the scheduled. Yeah. 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 So, but this is your first, like, airline. Real airline. Real airline. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Bigger airline. Now, you said you, you, you know, everything you were focused on at that point was to get a job at Mustang Air. Uh, you were located there with your other job. You had, you had ample opportunity to kind of get your resume and applications and interview prep done. Do you remember that process? Well, was that something, I know things have changed over the years. Now it's all about online forms and algorithms and questionnaires and, and it's not really who you know anymore because nobody really walks in a resume anymore. But back, uh, you know, a few years ago, that's really how it was. And you have, you know, given us a fantastic example of how a typical pilot in the private sector would have to build time. They wouldn't even look at your application. Uh, I mean, oh, yeah. you know, oh, I got fifteen hundred hours in an ATP. Let's go. No, that <laughs> you had to have all yeah. this experience and this this uh, traveling across the country and getting different jobs, doing different things. And it sounds like you know it's been a fantastic opportunity for us to hear all of the different experience and the networking that you've done and the friendships that you've acquired. We've been saying it since day one is it's you don't burn your bridges in this industry because it may seem larger than life, but it is a very small community. When you look at the reality of it, you built that yeah. time and here you were now with plenty of experience under multiple aspects. How did you, how did you line yourself up? to get that job. It's funny you, should, <laughs> funny you should say that because it just so happens that, that uh, my girlfriend, soon to be wife, uh, her, her dad was um, a property manager, commercial properties manager. And he managed the property that was the uh, headquarters for Mustang Air. Uh -huh. And so I used to go to coffee in the morning with him and all of his cronies. They were a really interesting bunch of guys. They were, uh, now, all had uh, something to do with aviation, you know, with the uh, uh, either flying corporate for the casinos there or uh, former instructors there or uh, just they all they all were pilots from one one degree or another. And they all got together for coffee every morning. And it was a great place to go and get my uh, current events and local history lesson from the old timers. And uh, and we go to coffee and he kept telling me, I, I think I, I can. Get your resume into, uh, I forget his name, but he was the head of human resources there at uh, Mustang Air. And, hmm. and I didn't believe him. 
Yeah, I've been. I, I, I had put out. It had to be easily a thousand resumes and applications. I had sent them out to every commuter, uh, you name it. And there was a bunch of them back there back then. Uh, and I know I'd send applications and resumes to every every operator in the country. And it, it just doesn't work that way, you know. And uh, you got to have so and so. I was I was I was channeling all those people that told me what I couldn't do when I was young. Um, and so, uh, I went to uh, Mountaineer Cargo and, uh, I came back, uh, on a, on a, a three day weekend I had to see, to see, uh, Leslie. And he said, Hey, uh, and again, I forget his name, but, uh, the director of human resources, he said, you'll meet us for coffee. Uh, really? She said, yeah, <laughs> bring a resume. Yeah. Okay. So we met and uh, had a nice visit. And he said, he looked at my resume and said, yeah, you meet all the qualifications. You had to have 5,000 hours total time. You had to have 1,000 hours of jet wow. at the time. And I just, I just, I just met that 1,000 hours of jet with my citation time hmm. to get an interview. Wow. And uh, because what happened at, uh, at Mustang Air, they were part of another, they, the, the initial cadre there were um, DC-9 pilots from a previous airline that had gone bankrupt. And uh, so they had a lot of, uh, mm. they had a lot of, had a lot of guys with type rating. So there initially you had to have a DC nine type rating and then they ran out of those guys. So then they, so they said you had to have, uh, you had to have a thousand hours of jet, 5,000 hour total time. And then, then when it started getting hard to find, they went to, they went to a uh, thousand hours of a PIC 121 time, which started dipping into the, dipping into the uh, commuters that were getting the had the had the 121 aircraft mm. so she said yeah i think we can get you an interview interesting uh, oh <laughs> <laughs> well yeah so, sure <laughs> so i i showed up and i took their written test which is kind of like an AT, atp written and had an interview with the director of operations and the chief pilot and the director of training and uh they hired me. Wow. That's amazing. You know? Yeah. How, how, and it was uh, like a, a whirlwind. It's like, how did I get here? Hanging out, having coffee <laughs> turned into a, a 121 job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Should have <laughs> just done this five years ago. No. <laughs> you know, at that point, at that point, I realized, I really realized, oh, this is how the world works. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, it was kind of a kind of a deal where, you know, it sure helps who you know. And you got it. It's what you know that keeps you there, though. But you know, yeah. you, you need to you need to establish contacts and maintain those contacts throughout your life. It, be, it's 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 a world world of people. Yeah, yeah, so true. You know, and that's something that I try to bestow upon my my daughter and like, all the young people in my life, my nieces and nephews, is be kind. You know, we, we, we live in a world and in a time where social media and technology, it allows us to have this veil of fake security that we can just say anything we want. We can be sarcastic. And, and, you know, I was one of those younger people that was sarcastic and thought I was being funny and lighthearted because I wanted to make somebody laugh and not realizing that sarcasm, though it might be fun with a, a buddy. You know, you kick, you kick them when they're down kind of thing. 
But when it comes to your professional goals and environment, man, you really got to be kind and learn how to talk to people and more importantly, learn how to listen to people. And it sounds like a lot of the experiences that you're telling us about lended the opportunity to have to intermingle with a lot of different people of a lot of different personality types within the industry and still maintain that reputation that you you mentioned that you had as being not just a rule follower, but someone that could be dependable and reliable um, and fly the airplane the way it's supposed to be and not hot dog it. And in the end, that reputation lended an opportunity to to get the employment for your dream job, the job that when you were a kid, you were surrounded by people that were not helping you see that you could do. And mm. here you were years later doing it. And you got the job at Mustang Air. I've flown with many people. I have what now I can say are my friends, uh, coworkers that I've flown with that I've had a wonderful rapport with over the over the years. Um, we've had a few on our show that have flown for Mustang Air. Um, oh, really? Yeah, Hans uh, has oh, been on the show. Yes, sir. Uh, he's he's a good friend. I, yeah. I still chat with him on a weekly basis at least with the with the help of social media it's one of the good things about that um and a few others and we've you know always love hearing about how laid back that employment time was for them because uh, mustang air seems to have had that small airline experience at a time in the in the late 90s when people were more laid back they had more fun and weren't worried about someone, you know, going, I'm offended. I'm going to write you up. <laughs> You're no. not wearing your mask properly. <laughs> I'm going to write you up. Oh, Don't pull your mask down in front of me. I'm going to write you up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed because I thought I was your first here at, uh, on the show. <laughs> well, don't feel bad, you know. We 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 invite only the best in the best company. That's right. <laughs> so your the merger happened. Um and we're not talking about the big merger, the Moab, all that stuff. We're talking about when Mustang Air was acquired by Legacy Airlines back in I think it was what 1999. Yeah, uh, and that was the I, I like to think that that was the test run for all the other ones. Yeah. Mm. And, and there were some difficulties to be had back then. That was uh, more, I, I don't want to say vintage uh, legacy management, but it was uh, the uh, the older generation of management over at Legacy Airlines that, you know, was going through that. And this is, of course, at a time when there was a lot of growth in the industry still. And Times were different. Now, when you came over to Legacy, what equipment did you end up getting on? I stayed on the MD-80. Okay. Hmm. And that transition that was a couple of years after you got to American, before you saw something else? I need to think about it. It was quite a while, actually. Um, I was about quality of life, and, and I, I liked being where I was. I was familiar with the airplane, and it, it, at least for a little while. Uh, I didn't want to change anything that I didn't have to because a lot of things were changing. And I came out here. Um, Texas was a big, a big change for us. Uh, Texas can be a hard place to live. We have a love-hate relationship with Texas. Uh, 
you know, it can be, it can be a hard place to live, but, um, uh, but I've, this is my 41st address in my life, physical address. I can't them one day. Oh my. Wait, what? what? <laughs> yeah. You know, we, um, my, my parents were divorced when I was young. And so a couple of address changes going back and living with dad a little bit. And, and, and my grandparents were, um, uh, they were, uh, construction he my great grandfather was a construction laborer so he went from hydroelectric dam projects back and forth and and so we saw we saw some movement and and then of course the career um so this is my 41st physical address now that being said uh i i've lived here for over 20 years now and uh and like i say texas texas uh hands out its its challenges but in in the places that I've lived that have been the hardest to live, uh, without almost without exception, the people have made up the difference. And I love my Texans. My neighbors are the finest people I've ever known. And, uh, and we're, I'm blessed to have them. Uh, my, my neighbors here, my church family, uh, I, I don't have to worry when I go on a trip, my wife and family are taken care of. Uh, so yeah, that's there's a, a lot that's to be said with that, especially in this day and age. Definitely. Yeah. 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 So, so, but, but we bought the ranch and, and, uh, and it was a lot of work. There was a lot of change. Um, I actually, uh, my, one of my oldest, dearest friends here is, uh, uh, he's kind of a counselor and, and I was having some difficulties when we first came here and what he summed it up is, you know, um, losses, losses can, can come in many forms. Um, you know, the worst being loss of a child, you know, a divorce being like second, second worst. And, and, and there are other, other losses, but there, but the effects can be cumulative. And mm. I had, I had lost my home in Nevada. I had lost all my friends in Nevada. I mean, I hadn't really lost them, but they were gone. I wasn't seeing them anymore. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I'd come, I'd come to, to, uh, my base here in Dallas and, and go out and fly with a, a captain that I'd never met before. And at the end of four days, I had a new friend, but at the end of that trip, I'm walking away and I may never fly with that guy again. So I just had another loss. And, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. So those things can be cumulative. So I didn't want to change anything that I didn't have to, because I was having a hard enough go of it as it was. I mean, my, the reason I bought this ranch is because my hobby was training border collies uh, to herd cows. That was my hobby back then. And, and I bought this ranch so I could have a few sheep to train pups with and keep that going, compete a little bit. And, uh, and my number one dog, uh, got run over and oh. that was a huge, I couldn't even talk about it for over a year. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, all of those things. So I didn't want to change anything. So I stayed on the 80 for quite a while until, until, uh, the seven three and then went to the seven three and flew it for seven years. and. Uh, Really enjoyed it. I love the seven three. Was that um, on the right seat? Or yes. Was, yeah. 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 We we were we were stapled at the bottom of the seniority, and then the then nine eleven happened. The lost ten years, sixty five. Um, yeah, it was eighteen years before I got back in the left seat. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they call it the lost decade after nine eleven for yeah. a reason. I mean, we, we we talk about what we've been going through now with this current pandemic and crisis in the industry and but really we've seen uh, an effect that 
it happened at a time when there was a national, if not global, pilot shortage. I remember over a year ago, we were talking about the Boeing stats on the national pilot shortage and how we just didn't have the numbers of people getting their private and commercial ratings anymore. So there was a, a lack of interest. I think people saw the the struggle and, and the stagnation and the, the lack of compensation for a career that's extremely expensive to get all your ratings and everything, get started in your education and all that. So yeah, that lost decade that, that was felt after 9-11, and some could argue even it started even a little bit before that, um, it really did put a hamper in a lot of people's quality of life. And it sounds like, you know, after that merger and the move to Texas and the, and the buying of the ranch and, and the loss that you felt, and it's a wonderful way of, of explaining it. Thank you so much. I've never actually heard somebody think of it like that or say, yeah. explain it that way, that loss, everything, yeah. and you fly with a great captain. I do that all the time. And then it's like, I know I may not ever fly with them again. Yeah. Thank goodness we have a podcast to try to get them to come on and talk to me <laughs> about their, <laughs> their life and stuff. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, it is an accumulative loss. And, you know, sometimes you feel kind of lo- down on it a little bit eh, and you think it's just you're tired, but it, it, I think there's a lot to be said about the feeling of knowing that hey, you may not never see this person that you had a, such a great time, you know, in the flight deck flying along doing what you love. Um, and you, ah, well, hope to see you again sometime. That's, that's a pretty, <laughs> it, it hits. Yeah. And, you know, those guys, all of those guys, you know, we talk about it, we're doing it right now, the, the stories that you get from everybody. And, yeah. uh, you know, fantastic stories that it kind of like feels like you're a part of their life now when you have to hear all those stories. And, and yeah. uh, you know, uh, yeah. boy, some of those, I remember the Vietnam guys, some of those guys had the most phenomenal stories. You'd go on for days about that. Oh, and, man. Uh, and yeah. yeah. So, and then you're, and then you're gone. And, and those guys, and I, what I wish I had done early in my career was su- sat down and, and wrote down those stories. I'd have a phenomenal book right now. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, yeah. it, it, at the very least, I, to, at the very least, I'd remember the names of the specific individuals. And I could, you know, you know, he was down in San Antonio. I wonder if he's, you know, and maybe just, Try to look them up sometime and say, hey, this is how you're doing these days. Yeah. 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 And we're going to have more with Captain Vic and all of the amazing stories that he's willing to share with us and how he got into the flagship DC-3 opportunity right after the break. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Now, we've been listening to the journey of Captain Vic Barber and how he ended up being an airline pilot, an airline captain. He, We've gotten up to the point where he's on the MD-80, he owns a ranch in Texas, and we're just discovering the amazing windy path as he put to get to this point in his career 
you know, a lot of us young aviators that have been around only for the past maybe decade or two uh, really have not had to struggle that much. Even though we say, oh, you know, the post 9-11 industry was tough to get a job. And really, I mean, to go from a flight instructor to a regional airline <laughs> is not a very difficult road. It may seem that way, but when you listen to Vic's story about all of the different flight experiences and all the different places he's had to move and to live just to get that flight experience, to get that next step, to get that next job in order to make it. And it's it's inspiring. So the next time you're sitting next to a captain or a pilot that's been around for more than a few decades and they start to tell you a little bit about their journey in aviation, my gosh, my hat's off to you. That, that's it's it's tiring <laughs> to hear it to go. Oh my God, what have you? What haven't you done? <laughs> you know. Um, but you said you have so quite a few ratings now, type ratings on mm-hmm. a multitude of aircraft. Walk us through how you went from having a nice, stable, good quality of life, getting settled into Texas, getting settled into the the sheep farm, and then going to the different type ratings. Was it just opportunity for upgrades that led you down this path? Well, I'll get there. Let me just make a quick comment mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, the guys that went yeah. from flight instructor to, you know, to the commuters. Now, I had a unique, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have done it the way I did it because I'm just a simple farm boy from Idaho. And I need to, I need to learn things slow and easy. So I got all bits and pieces of that, uh, 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 of the aviation industry a little bit at a time. And, you know, it's like training a pup. You give them a little bit, a little bit. Those fellows that go from flight instructing, uh, you know, they get the rating and now all of a sudden they're a 250-hour flight instructor. And and now they're out there with students, you know, hammering on landings and, you know, and getting sharp at their game. And then going off, you know, getting into a commuter where they're getting all kinds of new stuff hammered in. They didn't get eased into it like I did. It took me years to get to where they are, you know. Just, you know, I, I mean, just understanding. SOP and crew concept was a new thing for me until halfway through my career, seems like anyways. And so kudos to those guys because they because they took the fire hose. So, yeah, anyways. Mm. Yeah. And there is something to be said. I, I was one of those fire hose guys. <laughs> so there's something yeah. to be said uh, about, you know, the ability to keep up and, and retain it and not just have some kind of rote multiple choice answer the questions, but to sit there and and have all of the advanced avionics down-packed, get in there, and still impress at such a young age. It's a great opportunity right now in this industry. Yeah. You know, and I see, I see the results of that sharpness when I've got guys in the right seat who've gone that path, you know. And, uh, you know, okay, it amazes me. It's like, that guy's so much smarter than I am. What am I doing over here? <laughs> you know what? I, I think Rob and I had a conversation uh, early on in our careers. I think we were both Czech airmen over at Sandpiper at the time. And we we commented that we learn more from our, what we called students, but, you know, new hires that we were giving IOE to than we had learned in a while. I mean, every, every yeah, once in a while yeah. you turn around and you're like, oh, I never thought about this and i have you know all these hours behind me and and yet yeah 
you know, I'm learning from you. This is awesome. And I think that opportunity to learn from the pilot next to you is, doesn't matter what seat. It's, it's always there. And the young aviators that come up through the fire hose, schoolhouse mentality, or the school farms, if you will, um, you know, it's a lot you can learn from them. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So, so back to uh, your, your time on the 80, how did that uh, transfer over to another aircraft type? Okay, so I, I flew the 80. Um, I was an instructor on the 80 at, uh, at, at the last job. And uh, then I was in the right seat for quite a few years. And I was flying a trip with, uh, with a captain that I had flown. Uh, I think it was our second month we had flown together. You used to do that. You'd fly with a guy for a whole month. Because you you yeah. bid and you oh, had the same those days, yeah, same same yeah, bid. line bidding, yep, yep, yeah, and uh, and we were flying down to McAllen, and there were two DC threes sitting down there. I said, "Oh, I'd love to fly that airplane." And he goes, "That guy sells type ratings, and it's about ten thousand dollars." And I'm going, "Yeah, that's the last thing." And that, yeah, that, that ain't going to happen for me. Ten thousand dollars. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a new co pilot. I was back. When the pay was a little bit different, I had this big ranch that, you know, in retrospect, it wasn't that big of a deal that compared to a lot of guys with their houses. But, um, you know, we had, oh, I think my son, my first son had come by then. And yeah, $10,000 to throw at a DC-3 type rating wasn't going to happen. So I upgraded, uh, well, I moved to the right seat of the 737. and. Uh, and loved it. I always had that DC three thing in the back of back of my mind. And um, so I flew seven years on the seven thirty seven, and I had my bid in for triple seven and seven eight. And uh, I, I, I was didn't expect to get either one. And I got the triple seven. It came way down low in seniority. I don't know if it's because I, I bid poorly. Uh, but nobody wanted to go to training in the summer or whenever time of year it was, but it came way down low to get me. And so, well, I have a triple seven bid. And, um, so I went to training for the triple seven. Uh, I got my type rating. I was out on the line one month and I got my call that I had got the seven, eight bid. And I thought, well, how does that happen? I thought I was locked in for two years. Yeah. And, and turns out, well, the triple seven was new equipment. So, you get out of a lock-in for new equipment. Mm. So they said, oh. okay, you need to consolidate. You need to get your hundred hours or, you know, hundred or fifty. Anyway, you need to get your, your consolidation in the triple seven, and then we'll send you to seven, eight school. So I consolidated that next month. And then I went to Miami, got my, uh, got my training and my type rating in the seven, eight. Uh, and then we didn't have any airplanes. Oh, so, so I had to go back to this triple seven to requalify and finish out the year in the triple seven and uh at least 10 maybe 11 of the months of the year that i was on the triple seven i was the dead bottom guy in dallas yeah yeah wow yeah and then finally i got over to the seven eight and i flew it for two years so that's that's two more type rates but when i upgraded the triple seven i i i had i have done this thing uh over the years when i get a type rating i i, I treat myself to something when i got uh, I didn't, I didn't do it with a citation because I was just lucky to have a paycheck. And, uh, but <laughs> when I upgraded, when, when I upgraded um, on the MD-80 uh, at Mustang Air, 
I bought a, uh, a Breitling watch. I wanted that watch since I was in college. All right. And so I celebrated and bought the Breitling titanium chronograph. I and, remember uh, you telling me this story when we were flying, Vic. This is, a, this is great. Keep going. Yeah. So, so then when I got my type rating on the, uh, you know, I don't remember if I did anything on the 737 because I was still a, a, a first officer and we, I had a first officer type rating until right before the end, the last, the last check ride I had on the 73, they were finally getting rid of all those second in command type ratings and giving everyone a full type rating. So I, I don't think I really celebrated for that, but for the triple seven, I decided I'm getting a DC three type rating. And that fellow down in McAllen wasn't there anymore. And I started searching around. And I think uh, Dan Greider over in Atlanta, he was given him type ratings. He second in command and, and PIC type ratings. I think his PIC was $16,000, I think. And was still looking. And, and somebody mentioned the flagship Detroit. He said, why don't you give Zane Lemon a call? He's running the flagship Detroit. And uh, I said, yeah, I will. So I gave him a call. I said, hey, I've been, I want to get a DC3 type rating. And, and Zane, if if you haven't been here uh, that long, Zane was a chief pilot, um, and uh, I think he had retired at that point. Yeah, I think he had retired at that point, and he was doing the flag. He was doing the uh, just the flagship stuff. Well, um, he said, "Well, we don't really sell type ratings here. We we need people to come over and help, and you know, uh, crew and and I said, "Oh, you mean you can get involved in." You know, don't, don't just get a because I had fully intended to buy a type rating and maybe never get to fly the airplane ever again. Yeah. But I wanted it that bad. And, and I said, you could keep flying the airplane and be involved. And I said, yeah, that's what we need. All right, I'm in. So, so it started out. Um, it started out. Uh, I ended up going up to Tulsa. Um, Legacy, Legacy has let us keep the airplane. You know, the flagship Detroit is a foundation, uh, and it's made up of a good number of uh, current and retired uh, uh, legacy pilots, but there's also outside legacy as well. There's, um, that's just who started it. Um, so I ended up on a work crew. You know, we were a 500-hour check, and, and a lot of the mechanics, uh, legacy mechanics, volunteer, and legacy lets us keep it. You know, it, 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 in Tulsa, we were keeping it in a big hangar up there, and 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 Denton, or actually Alliance, early on. And uh, anyway, so I started out my tenure with the uh, flagship Detroit uh, at 100 degrees in the tail cone of the airplane with a wire brush scrubbing. Oh, and and having the time of my life. Oh man! Uh, so so we went up to <laughs> we we went up, we were up there, and this is my introduction introduction to. Uh, major airline maintenance because I had never, you know, I'd always gotten along real well with mechanics and hung out with mechanics at smaller operations, you know, just out at the hangar. Well, at Legacy, it's a whole different ball game in the hangar. It's a whole, it's amazing. And so I remember going up and I needed a, a weird, I was using this little plug-in vacuum cleaner because I was scrubbing stuff out of the inside of the tail cone back there and vacuuming it up. And I was asking about a tool. I needed you know, a tool or I'm trying to remember what it was, some sort of a tool. And I was looking to, I would be a typical farmer. I was going, well, how can I fix this up? So it works better for me. And, and I asked one of the mechanics, cause they, <laughs> a bunch of those mechanics come over on their brakes and work on the airplane or they, their day off. They come, they come and work on the airplane. It's a labor of love. 
and uh, and our our maintenance director is is a 737 uh, maintenance guy, uh, maintenance manager up there. Uh, so anyway, I go out and talk to one of the mechanics. He said, "Is there any way we can do this so I can you know so it'll work better?" And he goes, "Oh no, we got a tool for you." And we walked over to the tool room, and it's a and it, you know it's a it's it's like a uh, a window in the wall, and hey, he needs a so and so. She went back and got me a, a tool specific to the job, and I was absolutely amazed. This is incredible, and went back and I had the right tool. I didn't have to make do, and yeah, uh, I became I became a regular visitor visitor over at that window because they would just give you stuff you needed to work on. You know, the right tool for the job, and and you know that's kind of a rare thing out on the ranch. You know, I tell I tell my wife, you you know, she teases me about buying tools. I say, yeah, I don't need it. She goes, what do you need that for? I said, I don't. But someday I'm gonna, and it's gonna be, it's gonna save my bacon when I need it. Yeah, and, and sure oh, enough, yeah. and that's the way it was there. They had the right tool, and if they didn't have the right tool, we we had a uh, a prop. Uh, there's a big nut that holds, you know, big nut that holds a prop on, right? And we and we didn't have a wrench for it. So the guys at the guys at uh, the maintenance guys had one milled. Out of a solid stock of metal, and it and this is fabricated. Huge. It, it, huh? They fabricated it, and it's uh, it had to be I don't know a four foot, three or four foot wrench. Wow! And they had it, wow. and they milled it. And not only that, because those guys love they love being involved with the with the flagship. So they not only made the tool for us, but they made a box for it. And there's a whole crating <laughs> crating uh, section up there. You know, a department right. that does crates for shipping engines, shipping parts. And, and those guys and all that, those, yeah. yeah. So those guys normally they just put a crate together. They don't get to do the real nice work. You know, they just mm. throw a crate together that's a good strong crate that'll be great for shipping. And it's sort of like my dad always told me, if you hey, if you want a good paint job, go to Earl Scheib. I said, Really? It's a two hundred dollar paint job. No, no, no. You walk in and tell them you want a good paint job. And those guys don't get to do the real nice work because they they always have to do the cheap jobs. But when mm. you give them a good job, they do a great job at it. Because they don't get to do it very often. Well, nice. that's the same way with it. They made a they made a big box for this wrench, and it, it's out of wood. When I saw it, I thought it was metal because it was so well done. And they they did this box and it was sanded up and and just beautiful. And they did this beautiful deep lustrous paint job. I thought it was a metal box. Wow. And, and they lined it with uh, felt, and you know, so the tool fit in perfectly to it. <laughs> And they put the flagship Detroit on the top of it. You know, oh, it was wow. It was amazing. Those guys, it's a labor of love. It's what they do. And they don't, you know, they want to yeah, yeah. contribute. Yeah. That's so, cool. So the way the training works is, you know, you become a member, you can become members at different levels. And so so you go to an air show and they and they're looking for members, you know, general general membership for the flagship Detroit Foundation. And and that costs a hundred dollars. Well, it just so happens that we're doing rides that day. Uh, you get to the front of the line on the ride because you can ride the airplane if you're a member. If it's going somewhere and it's not a training, it's not a training mission. Uh, you can get on the airplane and go. Oh wow! It might not be Whoa. coming back to where oh. it started. So, it doesn't, <laughs> so if 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 you don't have jump seat, you know, uh, options or yeah. non rev options, it might not be the best deal for you. But if you want to ride someplace on a DC three. And and you don't care how you get back, then yeah, jump on. You can go as long as there's room. And it's again not a training mission that we're. Wow. But we do a lot of the training. Uh, we do a lot of the training 
uh, in consequence with other things, you know, go, we're, oh, we're going to this air show. We're going to fly. We're going to work with, we're going to work with Vic on this one, uh, you know, put him in the left seat and we're going to get, you know, do some stuff along the way or, uh, because it costs a lot of money to run the airplane. So, yeah. so, so that, that level, the hundred dollar, hundred dollar membership gets you in the airplane. And, and that day cool. you get to the front of the line. And so, uh, and now for flying, it's a little bit different and it was a little bit, it was a little bit cheaper than buying a, buying a type rating, uh, from, from, you know, uh, Dan Ryder down in Atlanta. And, but the, but the whole thing was, I was with a bunch of guys that, you know, they, they got to know me and I got to know them and, and they, they, it's, everyone has a common, uh, interest and goal, taking care of the flagship. Everybody loves her. And mm. it, so, and, and then you'll get some, you, you get some individual training, you know, you got to go out and do some, do some stuff that you can't really do, uh, in consequence with, you know, deadheads or, or that sort of thing. And I remember my first, my first training flight going out, um, uh, we taxied out at Denton. And there were people lined up on the taxiway to look at her go out. There were people making comments on the radio, you know, and I kept looking back, looking back in the back of the airplane to see if John Paul, George and Ringo were back there because it was amazing. It's it, a she's, a, she's a rock star. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Every, everywhere she goes, everybody recognizes the DC three and they want, they want to get close to it. it yeah. I mean, it's like a single guy taking a puppy to a park. <laughs> Paul, you single guys out there, take note. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Great analogy. You know, in the opening, we were talking about how classic this DC three airplane is. Whenever you think of an old time airplane, you think of a DC three. We mentioned the Casablanca opening, and and Vic, I think you you were yeah. doing a little research in the show, and and, and Rob was uh, making sure that I I corrected myself <laughs> because uh, in the film Casablanca, it's actually what a, a Lockheed Electra, Lockheed Electra L, model L ten A. Yeah, not. A <laughs> I DC-3. think it's Air France too. So yeah, Th- Air that France makes sense. Lockheed Electra. Yeah, yeah. But still, you get but that whole tail dragger. You know, same era. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a FT to DC three is probably before that, but still, you know, they're all around the same time. So Vic, you actually got your type rating through the foundation. Is that how you ended up with it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, as the ground training was phenomenal. The, 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 uh, gentleman, uh, Gene, that, uh, that is a primary instructor and he's, he's slowing down a little bit, maybe, uh, um, Getting getting to where he's but maybe going to about retire maybe from the uh, uh, from the whole deal. Sure. Hopefully not soon because uh, he is a wealth of information. He's a fine gentleman and he's a great instructor. And but he's got he 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 instructed in DC threes um, uh, for an outfit that was doing GI Bill stuff. And he's got he's got uh, over ten thousand hours of dual given in the DC three. Wow. And, yeah, yeah, amazing, amazing character. Great stories. Again, fine gentleman. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't ask for better. Um, now, the yeah. the foundation itself, it is a nonprofit foundation. You can donate your time. You can donate finances. Where to find this is at flagshipdetroit.org. I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who is interested in looking into it from the website. You can donate, you can volunteer your time, you can schedule a ride, you can see what upcoming events are uh, available to you. 
uh, as a spectator or maybe if you want to get a ride from it. This DC-3, the, the actual flagship Detroit, was manufactured in early in 1937 and Legacy Airlines accepted delivery uh, in Detroit on March 2nd, 1937 to be exact. Uh, the DC-3... Uh, the flagship DC-3, this particular one, was the 21st of 84 DC-3s delivered to American Airlines and operated between 1936 and 1947. She was restored as a flying tribute to employees and is flown by retired legacy airline pilots who will appear in period uniforms. Flagship Detroit has the honor of being the oldest flying DC-3 in the world today. Wow amazing yeah stuff. now some of those yeah. numbers are subject to subject to discussion mm -hmm. uh my understanding is she's actually the 24th oh, and here's how here here's what happened uh 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 cr smith uh-huh can i use the name sure yeah yeah <laughs> so cr smith went to uh went to douglas uh he wanted an airplane uh he that was better than the dc2 and uh, uh, Douglas Dooley didn't want to fool with it at the time, but uh, Sierra Smith kept after him. Uh, he wanted more capacity. He wanted he wanted bigger engines. He wanted bigger range. He wanted to be able to go from uh, from the ma major hubs: New York, Detroit, Chicago. He wanted to cover all that. Uh, so they finally got together and they specked out over the telephone. They specked out this uh, airplane, and wow. so Douglas went after it. And the original 20, the idea originally was, was uh, to have an airplane with, uh, that was a sleeper, like a, you know, sort of like a train. You know, they have sleeping compartments. Well, the first 20 airplanes, uh, and Legacy got the first 20 airplanes, uh, uh, the product production run. And they were not the DC-3, they were the DST, Daylight, Daylight uh, Sleeper Transport, I think that's what it stands for. Huh. Uh, and and they had they had upper and lower bunks that folded out so you could actually sleep, in uh, uh, route. Um, so so uh, Legacy got the first twenty, and then I always get confused about who got the next twenty. It was United or Delta or uh, uh, one of the other major carriers, and then and then the next group came back to uh, to Legacy, uh, and so that was the the fourth one of that bunch. Then the military got involved, and they said, "Hey, we want a piece of this action. This is a good airplane, but we want some things different." Uh, the uh, the DC three has Wright Cyclone eighteen uh, twenty uh, engines, and the military wanted the uh, Pratt and Whitney engine. It's a two row radial. They wanted a little more fuel capacity. They wanted uh, beefier gear and uh, uh, a few other things. And so, so I think only uh, less than five hundred original DC-3s were built. Um, amongst the, the C-47, which was the military version, and variants uh, across the world, because even the Russians and the Chinese got in on that game and copied the airplane, there, the variants, there's uh, over 6,000 wow. uh, of, of those airplanes were built. She was delivered, actually, in Phoenix for all of you uh, oh. cactus people. So a little, little piece of history <laughs> there. And uh, she uh, she got the name Detroit because that was the that was a run that the uh, the Detroit run. Ah, okay. This airplane, this airplane, uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's been on this airplane a number of times. Uh, wow. 
He liked to sit in the aft right seat because that made her the last one to get on and the first one to get off. They didn't have Air Force One back then. And so, you know, that's so that's wow. been the Detroit's claim to fame on that. Very cool. Anyway, so so here's here's something I learned from you on a flight when we were um, actually I think we were flying into Reno. Um and you might be interested in this, Tony. I think the readers will get a kick out of it. Was uh one of the um, you know, profiles in every airplane we do, you know, we call for the landing gear up after takeoff. And a lot of guys that I've flown with here at Legacy, they use a hand gesture, you know, to signal to put the gear up. Now, Vic, I think you told me that that hand gesture actually originates from the DC-3. Was that something we talked about? It was. It was. It, the airplane, the, the right engines are so loud. Um, we, we use, uh, now we of course use Bose, uh, noise canceling headsets and, but it is so loud on takeoff that you can't even talk to ATC until you do the first power reduction. It is painfully loud. Um, now it's not so bad once you get that, that power back, um, for the, for the first reduction, but, uh, yeah, so there was, there were hand signals involved and that, that, uh, putting your, putting your palm out flat and raising your raising your hand uh up that was a signal for gear up and that stayed with the company until you know we were doing that until eight or ten years ago and finally wow. they gave it up nobody else <laughs> in the industry was doing that but there if you see goes. you see an old guy do that it's hard old yeah. habits are hard to break and it doesn't hurt yeah. anything i've been doing that my entire career i had no idea why <laughs> just like oh i must mean gear up this is, the gear is up. that amazing yeah that's <laughs> yeah, so a so Vic, tell us what it's like to fly the DC-3. So you, you gave us a little insight with the hand signal, but um, let's go further. So what are some of the most memorable runs you've had with it? Well, actually, uh, my type rating ride. Um, th this goes back to a story when I was in high school. I lived in Atlanta with my dad for a while. And one of my buddies, one of my buddies from school invited me to go water skiing up at Lake Lanier one day. And I'd never been water skiing. I grew up under, you know, uh, in, in Idaho under less than, farm. You, you know, I actually grew up in just a reservation town there. I didn't grow up on the farm. That's just the place I worked. And, and oh. uh, so, you know, stuff like water skiing and snow skiing and all that was for rich people. Fishing, you know, we all fished and hunted, but we didn't fly fish because that was for rich people. We just, you know, <laughs> we, were, we were fish killers. And uh, <laughs> So I went out to water skiing and it turns out that this friend's dad was a, was an Eastern airlines, uh, captain. And we went out on the lake and I had a blast. Uh, I, we skied all day long and I was in heaven. I just thought that was the funnest, coolest thing. And, and I remember thinking, you know, I want to, I want, I want a piece of this action. I want to be an airline captain. You know, and that was the first thought I really ever had about, you know, being an airline captain was back then. Well, so it just so happens that I'm in Tacoa, Georgia, getting my uh, type rating at, because our instructor a, has a has a long history with a with the DPE that does DC three types. That was an Eastern guy. He was actually he was actually uh, flying for Eastern Airlines when he was uh, when he was too young to have an ATP. And when mm. the day he the day he got his T, uh, ATP, they made him a Czech Airman because he had so much experience with the company. Uh, okay, so. Yeah. So, so anyways, we went and did the check ride where well, we're doing the check ride at Tacoa. Now Tacoa is, is North, uh, Northeast of Lake Lanier. 
And I hadn't, I wasn't thinking anything about it, but we were up there and we were doing our ride. I was all concentrating on doing a good job on my type ride. And, and well, ATC called traffic for us and, and the examiner and my instructor were looking and couldn't, they couldn't see it. And so I came off of my uh, foggles. I had foggles on because we were doing maneuvers and, and I, uh, I, I was looking around we finally spotted the traffic and, but we were in a turn and I looked down and I said, is that Lake Lanier there? And they said, yeah, is that, that's amazing. Cause arguably the, the, uh, <laughs> the pinnacle of my career is getting a DC three type rating. I've got the seven, six, I mean the seven, triple seven, the seven, eight, the seven, three, all those type ratings. The one that mattered was the DC three because it just mattered. And wow. it, it just felt like the biggest accomplishment. And I'm turning circles, looking down where, where that, that whole thing kind of started. Started. Yeah. Was, yeah, it was just, yeah. It was one of my Forrest Gump moments. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, so, that's amazing so but you asked how it is to fly it's just amazing and, and, and it's not it's not uh you feel like you're doing something uh it's not like you're uh you're not doing a little little bit here a little bit there you know um like any tail dragger she'll eat your lunch if you let her and mm. and you know and so you basically got to let her know what you want you got to move the move that column you got to move those ailerons you got to move those rudders big time sometimes and wow. uh, you just feel like you're doing something and and mm. and you're making a bunch of noise and and uh, <laughs> it's just awesome <laughs> I, yeah I you know yeah i'm just sitting here thinking about it just just uh, yeah, I mean, we were looking at you. Telling, I was, was going to say, I was going to say, if you're listening to the podcast right now, you can't see this, but the <laughs> smile on Vic's face right now goes from one earphone all the way across his face to the other earphone. Yeah, absolutely, it, uh, it's obviously amazing. It, it is clear that it is a passion and a love affair that you have with that aircraft, and the opportunity that you are so fortunate to have to be such a a big part of it. Thank you so much for sharing that yeah. with us. We wanted to ask you, with all your experience, I'm sure you have enough to give us for another four or five hours worth of topics, and maybe we'll just have to have you on again. But uh, yeah. we, we like to ask a couple questions from your you know, plethora of knowledge and wisdom. You know, you've, you've been flying now for, for quite some time. What has been the one probably scariest or should i say the most stressful scenario you've had in flight flying with yeah. rob no, go ahead. <laughs> that is pretty scary <laughs> the whole time i'm flying with him what else is he going to figure out that i'm not doing right Come on. no you sorry, know you, you know that that comes up that comes up from time to time and you know i remember I remember the first time I lost an engine in my J three cup, um, back when I was, back when I was younger, I had a hundred some odd hours of flight time. And, and, uh, you know, my instructor, the one that had the one that recommended me for the job, my first job, you know, we went out, we were out over the desert and, and, uh, and we were doing simulated engine failures and, you know, he pulled the power back and I went through the procedure and told him what I was going to do. And, and he didn't respond. So I'm waiting and no response. I'm getting closer to the land, to, to, the, to the ground. And I'm lined up on a kind of a trail that's out, out there in the desert, a little, you know, truck trail. And, and uh, he turned around and grinned at me. He 
better land it. And, and so we actually followed through and landed. And, and then we turned around and took off. And, and so in that airplane, um, a few months later, I actually, my engine did fail. And it was a, it was a fuel issue. Um, I had recently gone to auto gas and apparently that had destroyed the gasket that was in my uh, gas later and it, it had clogged up the car carburetor and I landed out there in the desert and, and it really wasn't a terribly big thing. Cause I actually, there was a strip out there where I, where I was and landed. And I think back about all those things that have happened you know, in the past. And, and it depends on, it depends on preparation when you're, when you're prepared, uh, you know, the next time I had an engine failure, I was, I had a starduster, starduster one, and it, I was in the pattern and it failed and I was upset because it failed. I wasn't, mm. you know, and I'm just, I just did a pattern, you know, dead stick landing in the feet on, on the runway. It was no big deal. And probably Oh, we had a we had a pressurization issue uh, coming out of out of Denver once, and 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 that was probably the worst one that I ever had because I really wasn't prepared for that in my mind. I might, you know, it, it, one of the good great things as an instructor, you can tell you know students is never go anywhere your brain hasn't gone already, and my brain hadn't gone there. And we talk about yeah. we talk about Sully, you know, um, you know Sully w with his situation. Our brains have all been there now because he did that. Yeah, and uh, so, I, yeah. so I can't I can't think of a specific moment. I was actually had a fire once, and and it's one of the funniest things ever when I tell the story because I was in a I was in a Navajo, and we we took off out of Grand Junction, and we were heading back over to Denver, and we just taken off. We were climbing out, and all of a sudden a big bright light on the right hand side, and I was I was transporting. Uh, one of the other pilots that lived out there, uh, he, they were sending him to Montana or something. He needed to come, come to Denver. And he was sitting over, he was an old cowboy dude and uh, big bright light on the right-hand side. And I'm going, I looked over and said, are we on fire? And he goes, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I said, I guess we ought to go back, huh? He goes, "Yep." <laughs> so I feathered the engine. We turned around, went back, and landed. It wasn't that. It, what what happened was the uh, what, uh, the oil cap. There was a the, uh, the oil cap on that on that engine. It had a, a flip top thing that then the the uh, gasket had worn out, and so it slipped loose and was spilling oil back on the turbocharger. As soon oh, as I pulled the cool. engine back, uh, it stopped because the turbocharger cooled down. Yeah, and. Uh, so we went back and had the mechanic fix it and we pressed on, on our way, but you know, it's fire. You know, everybody say you had a fire, you lived good. Yeah. Got a good story out of it too. <laughs> you got to say it just like you did. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So oh, engine wow. failures, engine fires, pressurization issues, you know, that stuff's going to happen. They're machines. And I learned that on the farm, a machine will break. It's their machines. They break. Uh, and things are going to break on airplanes. But the beauty about airplanes is we have redundancy built in, and we have procedure, and then yeah. we have a pilot. So, yep, two yeah. pilots. 
Yeah, you know, the seven Ps, you know, you said something that reminded me of the seven Ps. It's an old military adage from, I think, actually Great Britain. Um, Proper planning and preparedness prevents piss poor performance. Yeah, that's right. And at the end of the day, you know, like you said, we all know now that it could happen. You can ditch an aircraft in the Hudson and everyone can live. Um, You know, a couple of shows ago, we talked about Pan Am Flight 6. You could actually ditch an airliner in the ocean in the 50s (laughs) and everyone can survive. Captain Og, Captain Richard Og showed us that it can be done. And so we, we hear about these stories and the pilots that I've met over the years that are intrigued by accident reports. At first, I used to think, why are you focusing on such negativity? Why well, just, you know, fly the airplane, you know, learn about the major ones. And, but why are you so enamored with air disaster? You know, why are you watching these shows? And I came to realize relatively quickly that what you learn from these experiences are both what not to do and how to react in the event that they happen to you. And that's why they say there are bold pilots and bold pilots, but not old bold pilots. Well, but the truth is (laughs) with experience comes, (laughs) comes a knowledge. And when you share that knowledge, everyone around you in the community can learn from it. And, you know, you've shared so much knowledge with us. It's an amazing story to hear, and you're so calm with, oh yeah, yeah, engine's fire, yeah, I guess you'll go back, yep. yeah, yeah, I guess so, you know, oh look, uh, uh, lost an engine in my cub, uh, I guess I'll just put it down here in the field, I did it a couple of weeks ago, what's the big deal, right? I mean, that's really what people expect when they hear airline pilot, or even pilot in general, GA pilot as well, yeah. they, they expect this Clint Eastwood stare you know, and just <laughs> like, dirty, yeah, like I, I can't stare without smiling though. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so in all your experience, have you had to deal with some major conflicting personalities on the flight deck? How did you handle? Them? Oh, you know what? That's a great question because I just did an interview uh, in the training department, and they asked a question kind of like that, and and I gave a uh, I gave an answer that. I thought was kind of was applicable, uh, and then I, then I thought about it later on. I always had the perfect answer way too late. Uh, <laughs> I should have said, I should have said, well, you know, you ever had any conflicts you had to deal with? And the answer should have been, uh, does that include my wife? And Hey-o. how do I handle it? <laughs> how did I handle it? Well, the answer is, I'm sorry, you're right, and I was absolutely wrong, and you look marvelous in that outfit. <laughs> How would that work with your FO though? <laughs> you look marvelous in that outfit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I gotta say that I, I feel so absolutely blessed. Um at Legacy Airlines, probably I've flown with one captain that I wouldn't want to fly with again. Uh and uh I, I have a son who is high functioning autistic. And, and that's basically a communications disconnect. And he, uh, and, and I, so I get it. Um, I, but I flew with this fellow for a trip and I kept finding myself thinking, did he just say that to a 40 something year old grown man? And, uh, and, 
And does he not? And he was new to the airplane. And 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 I had been, I had a considerable considerable amount of time on it. And I just kept getting these. It was treating me like a new hire. It ended up that ended up being kind of a, a bad ending for me because I finally just got to the point where he was telling me to do something that was wrong, and I pointed out to him in a kind of an abrupt way. Uh, and I said, no, you can't do that because this and this. And, and he backed off. And it, it, and it was, I felt, I felt like I had failed because my job is to support him and make his job easier. And, and I had lost, kind of lost my temper really, but then he backed off and left me alone. Uh, and I was able to do my job better. And, and, you know, that's kind of like old school. You know, back in the old days where you, you know, slug the bully in the gut and he leaves you alone kind of a deal. But it shouldn't work that way in a crew environment. And, and I felt like I had failed. And so, but that was so, so that was one person that the only person I ever put on a no fly, you know, on my no fly, uh, no pairing list. Yeah. And, and again, so that's a conflict that I failed at, I, I, I think. But after it was over, it dawned on me. And the fact that he actually backed off on that and the way he did it, I felt this guy's on the spectrum. If you're not familiar with uh, autism, it's just a spectrum. You got the high functioning end and you got all the way down to in, non, uh, no ability to communicate with people. And, uh, oh, this guy, this guy's on the, on the spectrum. And it, it, it helped a little bit, but I still felt like I had failed on that. And we learned from my failures. And, but, it, but at, uh, legacy airlines, I, I so blessed cause I, cause I've flown with guys that, Oh, this is, this is a tedious flight, but never someone that I could, didn't feel I could fly with again. Yeah. And now back in my previous jobs, there you go, I flew with some characters, some incredible characters. <laughs> and that's the best way to say it. You characters, because yeah. it's a little bit different world. You know, when you're out there flying freight at night, everybody's tired and, and different backgrounds and, and, you know, and there's, there's, and some guys that aren't looking for that way up and quite frankly, probably aren't going to make it there. Yeah. And, uh, so your conflict resolution may be a little bit different, but again, uh, sometimes you have to speak up and, and say, you know, Oh, there was one fellow that I flew with that in the citation that that would he was terrible with controllers. And we were flying somewhere near Three Mile Island uh, on our way up to the northeast. And I knew this guy. He was he came from a pretty rough background and and uh, you know not a very genteel kind of a person. And uh but we went up and we got a vector. Uh and uh, something happened. They vectored us and slowed us down. It didn't, we didn't understand because we we're kind of in the middle of nowhere, but you know, New York has its, you know, they've got the big picture and we don't. And, uh, and he, and he laid into that controller and I was just over there in the right seat cringing. Uh, I was so embarrassed, you know? And, uh, so we press on and we go into Hartford or some, wherever we were headed and we land and we come back out and we're headed back to Cincinnati and we in that same spot. And out of the blue, we got a 360 degree turn and he grabbed the mic and started to go. And I stopped, stopped. And I said, stop right there. You have this coming and you know it. <laughs> and, and he looked at me 
And he grinned. He goes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always treat your controllers with the utmost respect because at the end of the day, it's like, ah, they'll wave you off the arrival and they'll say, you know, prepare for holding. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, we've, I asked that question because I always find it interesting the way, the way people respond. And it seems like sometimes you'll get a co-pilot or a, or a captain that you fly with that they're just, you don't know the struggles they may have in their life. You really don't know the battles that they're fighting maybe that day or that year or that month or whatever it is. And they get in the flight deck and immediately you could have scenarios and they're very rare, but you could have scenarios where the barriers of communication have gone up. The, the interpersonal skills may not be there that day. And you as an individual and a professional will tell yourself what they call a micro story in that moment. And you say, well, what's wrong with this guy? Why, you know, why are they being so stuck up? Or maybe, why did he bark at me? He's, I'm not his, you know, slave. I'm not sitting here. I, I, I need respect, you know? So next thing you know, you have these comp personality conflicts on the flight deck. Now, the first example you gave, you know, you, you pushed back a little bit and the guy backed off. And in my experience, I've seen this many times. And it's usually a particular personality type where they want to know that the person next to them is on par with them and they're going to stand up and just be one of those types that are going to stand up and get what they need. So you push back a little bit and then they back off and then they got respect for you. If you sit there and kind of go, oh, are they? well, you're being mean, you're a jerk, you know, and next thing you know, <laughs> it's very uncomfortable for the rest of the trip, you know. Um, other personality types, it's just, you, like you said, especially at the, uh, the commuters and or maybe the cargo operators or the jump operations or whatever you're doing, you come across people that they don't have that end goal in sight, at least not right away. So they end up, they're like, oh, this is my job and I'm doing it and, you know, just get out of my way. And that, that becomes a conflict and it's very uncomfortable. I think what we are getting at here is at the end of the day, when you're looking at the person next to you and trying to figure them out, have a little bit of compassion, I think is the common thread and try to, like you saw that as a failure. You said you saw it as a failure when you, when you push back a little bit and you snap back at this, this pilot that was being kind of rough around the edges. And, but I think that worked, that worked in that scenario. Um, a lot of young pilots ask these questions and and I think it's something that just comes in time to learn how to deal with it. Um, you've given some, some great examples of sometimes people, maybe like you mentioned the, the one captain, maybe he's on the spectrum. You would know you have experience. And once you have that understanding, I think that's when you become compassionate to the fact that, okay, I'm going to now adjust how I operate. And next thing you know, everything's smooth as butter. You're just kind of, you get along, you do your trip. And then it's the end of the, the end of that sequence. It's like, okay, have a nice life. See you again. Maybe never. <laughs> um, it's tough. I went on a rant there. 
Um, no, no, that was a good one because there's, you know, I, I, I learn a lot, I, you know, I, I've learned a lot from guys that I've flown with. Uh, and, you know, there's some guys that, and, and everybody I fly with, there's guys that fly the airplane. It'd make your eyes water how good they fly the airplane. There's guys that know, they know SOP or they know regs or they, and then there's guys that are really good with people and situations. Uh, and then there's the guys that aren't, you know, and you wonder, you flown with that guy that, that can honk off a flight attendant with a single look, you know, and it's like, how do you do that? And, and why would you do that for start? But you learn from all those, from all those people and those, they, those specific skills that they have. And again, a huge blessing that I've, I've been exposed to so many of those guys. Now, the, as far as the conflict between, you know, in the cockpit, the only guy you get to experience that with is the, uh, the guy on the other side of the seat. And maybe, maybe you catch him doing something that disarms you maybe. And, um, and, and, Oh, wow. He just handled me. Well, my wife does that all the time. She, you know, I start to get worked up about something and she calms me down and it's like, you know, uh, I recognize that when she does it, but you know, maybe, so we don't get as much of that, of that secondhand experience, uh, when we're in the cockpit, we get secondhand experience with them dealing with flight attendants, maybe, or ground personnel or gate agents. And some of them are just marvelous at it. So, uh, and and just being steady that seems to be the you know take a breath before you say anything and and, and be steady and think about it for a second yeah and uh yeah yeah that's sage advice i and i try to follow that as much as i possibly can do and not just at work <laughs> take a breath think about it <laughs> now as we were kind of wrapping up the show here we've had you on uh, and, and we do appreciate you, you spending the time with us and giving oh, us pleasure. You know, this insight. We always like to finish up with our guests with a couple questions that make them ponder a little bit about moments in their career. If you had to go back in time just for a moment and whisper in your younger self's ear, what would you tell yourself? Whatever you do, do not neglect your family. Well said. Wonderful. Wow. You know, we are focused, hard focused. Because, you know, we perceive, and, and it's true, that, that you need to have hard focus. People ask me, uh, what does it take to be an airline pilot? Well, clearly not a lot of intelligence. Um, <laughs> but what you have to have is a lot of want to. You got to want to do it. You really got to want to. And, that, you know, the drive to follow through with that. But with a lot of things, it's easy to go over the top with that. And uh, and if you have if you have like I had younger in my career, if you had um, uh, you were lacking self esteem, you know, everybody said that you couldn't do it, you can't do this, and you're out to prove that you can do this. Um, you tend to be a hard charger, or a hard driver, and let nothing get in your way. Uh, boil, you know, just plow through the obstacles. And but the fact of the matter is, is that that it is a world of people and family are the most important ones and if you have to you have to and it's going to cost you a little bit in your progress maybe sometimes but it's going to help you in your progress at other times yeah you have to you have to consider your family first and uh, and i didn't get i didn't really have a chance to consider my family until much later in my career and uh it probably why it took me so long to get have a family because nothing else mattered 
And, and it's a lone, it's a lonely world out there when you're out, when you're, you know, sitting in a hotel in, in Riverton, Wyoming at, at 20 degrees below zero. And, <laughs> you, you know, you can't pick up a, you don't have anybody to talk to, or you don't have, you, you don't even have the, to look forward to coming home that night at the end of, at the end of the trip to, a, to someone who uh, loves you and respects you and takes care of you. Nice. Very well, well said. said. Thank you. Yeah, man. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we would like to thank you for coming along with us on this journey. I'd like to say a big special thank you to Captain Vic Barber for spending the day with us here and talking about his journey in aviation and his involvement with Flagship Detroit. As we mentioned earlier, anyone interested in learning more about Flagship Detroit, you can go to their website at flagshipdetroit.org. Again, we'll have a link in the show notes. We'd also like to say a big thank you for all of you listening in today. Please be sure to subscribe and follow the Squawk Ident podcast wherever you're listening. We also love listener feedback. You can send us audio feedback and comments via our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar number Yankee.com. There you can also find audio archives, photos from the flight line, our Squawk Ident pilot shop and guest book photos as well. You can contribute to the show financially right there from the homepage. Also, if you're on social media, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can find us under the Squawk Ident Podcast. A big final thank you to Rob D. and Captain Vic Barber for joining me today, and a big thank you to you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other. Bye, y'all. See ya. See ya.